So the question on my heart as I come to the conclusion of lengthily studying this passage of Scripture that we're about to read is, does Christianity, real Christianity, the following of Christ, ever become kind of obsolete? Uh, Car parts become obsolete, computer parts become obsolete, all technology becomes obsolete, traditions become obsolete. Believe it or not, there are more traditions that have gone away that, that no longer exist than currently do. Um, we, for example, in Jesus's day, uh, they, at dinner, they always lay down or reclined around the table and they would often sit with their elbow on the table as they ate. Now in popular circles, you're not allowed to lay down or put your elbows on the table when you eat. So things change. Everything has changed. It seems like, uh, 80 years ago, uh, 85 years ago, something like that. Every adult male in the on the continent of Europe, whether they were German or Polish or English or French or whatever, every adult male went to church an average of 2.5 times a week. So they would go 
up to three times. It would go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, typically, but some churches were a little bit different, but typically they would go two to three times. Needless to say, that number has dropped dramatically. Um, the question is, does Christianity become obsolete? There's a moment in time at which certain worldly teachings, the things that the world teach us, it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that, um, stand directly in opposition. And frankly, even though we don't necessarily like to think this way, hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars are being spent, even as we speak and will be spent this year, in pushing some of those notions. Example, uh, there was a TV show called Leave it to Beaver. You may have heard of it. You may not have. Most of you, it's before your time. Um, and Leave it to Beaver, was he was a kid, about 9, 10, 11, 12 years old while the show was on TV. And he was uh, quite an interesting kid. He was kind of a Dennis the Menace kind of kid, getting all kinds of trouble, had certain notions about the way the world worked and that kind of thing. And on that show, at one point in time, I think it was uh, you know about 12 episodes in, they showed a toilet on TV. This was the first time that a toilet had ever been shown on TV, and Leave it to Beaver, the producers were fined $50 for showing a toilet on TV. The FCC fined them $50 because no one should ever show a toilet on TV. Now, I have now seen in spy movies and, and various other uh, conflict movies, action-adventure movies, if you will, fight scenes in bathrooms showing dozens of toilets. I saw a guy get his face broken on a toilet. I saw a guy break a toilet with his back. I've seen so many toilets on TV now, and none of them got fined 50 bucks. Will those rules about what's okay to display in public and talk about in public change? I was watching Downton Abbey, the movie, the new movie, the second movie last night with my wife. She's a Downton Abbey fan, has been uh, for a number of years, watched the entire series. Uh, and I'm somewhat a Downton Abbey fan, but uh, the bottom line is, uh, we were watching the second movie last night, and in the movie, one of the actresses who was in, who was making a movie at uh, Downton Abbey, said, "It's a funny thing to think that every man in the in the room wants to give you one." And she was she was making a sexual innuendo, and everyone in the room was shocked. They were they were like, <gasps> right? They couldn't believe it that she would make a sexual innuendo in her conversation. But she didn't say anything about sex. She just said, and, and so people could kind of understand what she was talking about. I submit to you that today what passes for crass or disgusting or irreprehensible speech has changed radically. The F word has become common so that literally people use it all the time and they wouldn't be saying he wants to give me one, that's what they would say or something distasteful like that. So the question is, do the rules, the teachings of God, the things that God has laid out for us, the way that God wants to work in our lives and the way that we are supposed to go, grow old? Do they wear out? When I was a young Christian, I thought, man, I want to serve God, and I was gung-ho. And, and the truth is, I'm pretty much like that now, 27 years later. Okay, um, But in between there, I've had moments where I thought, I don't think I can walk this course. I don't think I can continue. God called me to preach, and I'm driving down the road, and I'm going to New Heights uh, on Main Street to preach, and I had to, it happened to be three different times in the space of two years. And I was going to seminary at the same time, so I was I was putting in 40 hours of ministry and 40 hours of schoolwork every week. And it was just too much. And I was, it felt like I was going to melt under the pressure. And I got to the Navarre in East Broadway, which is the East Pseudo Baptist Church, was the church I got saved in, the building that I got saved in. And I thought, all I have to do now is turn to the right and go somewhere else. I literally thought, all I have to do is turn. I was sitting at the red light, and I don't like, as you know, I don't like to wait. I don't like, for, I don't like to wait for red lights. 
Um, I think there should be a special law that Dan does not have to wait for red lights, but I don't think that's coming anytime soon. So I pull up the red light. I could have turned to the right. It's a right turn on red. I don't have to wait. And, I, and everything in me said, I'm not going to go to New Heights. I'm not going to preach today. I'm going to give up the ghost, if you will. I'm going to quit. And I'm going to turn to the right and go somewhere else. And I sat there and I'm like, but, but that's not what's good for me. It's not what God wants for me. And I talked myself through it and God said, go, the light will turn green in a second. I'm like, okay, light's going to turn green. And light turned green. I drove to New Heights. And in the middle of the first worship song, I repented and came back to the Lord for the, for the feelings that were mine. Had nothing to do with God. I was feeling that way because of my own selfish, hardened heart. Okay, so, so I know it's possible by now that I would have caved in and become no longer a Christian 20 times. 20 times I could have given up this faith. 20 times I could have quit preaching. 20 times I could have quit studying. 20 times I could have quit praying. There was a moment I was doing laundry in my old laundry room before we renovated it, so that it could be like I was standing in my downstairs bathroom now, because that used to be where the laundry was. And I had been under such attack by the devil. And I know, whether it was him or evil spirits, but I had been under such attack, and I was ready to give up. And I said, I am not going to quit. No matter what you say, I'm not going to quit serving God. I've been through this. I know better. And I said, get away from me. In the name of Jesus Christ, leave me alone. And, and my head got quiet. And a minute or two later, said, wow, you, you're pretty strong in the Lord. You know how to defend yourself. A voice in my head. So you're pretty, you know how to defend yourself. And I started thinking, yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, I got to bring out the name of Jesus on you, brother. Kick you out of here. And then it said, but you can't teach anybody else to do that. And just as sudden as I felt better, I felt worse. And I was back in such a deep hole. And literally 10 seconds later, I was contemplating never preaching again, never studying the Bible again, never praying again, never, never trying to walk the Lord again. By the way, in fencing, that's called a riposte. When the enemy attacks in one place and then attacks harder in another place. And that's what happened there. So what I'm saying to you is, if you've been a Christian for a while now, or if you're not yet a Christian, then we need to address this fact. Is there going to be a moment in time at which this faith, this walk with Christ, this Christianity is no longer relevant to the moment? Does it become obsolete? Now, I didn't start there. That's where the scripture took me. So I'm giving you kind of like the conclusion question before we start reading the scripture today, okay? All right, so grab your Bibles if you would. Maybe you say a, a hoot, a holler, amen, or just go, ugh, as we go to chapter 10 of the book of Deuteronomy. Ugh. All right, so it is 10, 10, 10, 10. So if you memorize this verse, you'll never have to worry about the reference because it's Deuteronomy 10.10. How hard is that to remember, right? 10.10. I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. So you could memorize that verse pretty easily. It's Moses talking. says, I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights like the first time, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. I want you to see what's happening there before we go any further. This is like huge. It almost could be the sermon. It isn't. But it almost could be. What did he do? He made intercession for the Israelites who had sinned against God. While he was up on the mountain getting the tablets, they were down having a debauchery fest. They were doing sexual things. It probably started out with worshiping this false idol that they created, and then they sat down and they ate, and they got up to play, right? There's that innuendo that the Bible is using to say there was sexual, basically an orgy going on, or there were... There were uh, Lewd celebrations, right, going on. So he goes back up there, spends 40, and he makes intercession for the Israelites to the point that the Lord was not willing to destroy the Israelites. Then Levin says, 
Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So what does he do? So here Moses makes intercession. Then God assigns him a job. You see? He makes intercession for them, and then God gives him a job. He says, now you go in in the front. You go in and lead them in, right? If, you, if you're a Bible scholar, and if not, I'm going to help you in a second here. If you're a Bible scholar, you can kind of hear Jesus saying, pray. He says, the, the harvest is, is white. The wheat is white unto harvest. Go, we need harvesters. So he says, pray that the Lord will send workers into the harvest. And then in the next verse, he sent those who prayed that the worker would send, go into the harvest. He sent them into the harvest. Okay, This is what happened to Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Again, begs God. God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy the Israelites. Then he says to them, arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, you know the story in the long run. He does not do that because he fails as an intercessor. Ultimately, he sins against God and he is not allowed to go into the promised land. But the people still go, but Moses is not allowed to go. Okay, that's what ultimately will happen. Verse 12 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Uh, I don't need to hit them too hard, but that is a kind of like five-point summary, essentially, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of God. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God owns everything. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So in all creation, all that God has made, God chose you. Okay, and that's true for every Christian. If you're in this room, God loves you. If you're in this room to hear this message and you're not a Christian yet, understand, God loves you. And if God had to send Jesus to the cross to save only you, he would do it. You follow? So if the only person left in the world that wasn't saved was you, he'd have sent Jesus. And if no one was saved and you were the only one going to get saved, he'd have sent Jesus. You understand? That's how extreme that sacrifice is. Jesus could do it for everybody because he didn't have any sin. But he would do it for one. God has that kind of affection for you. There was a, an old story that I heard a long time ago, probably 30, 20, 25 years ago, about a pastor, and he was out on a boat fishing. He took his son and a young man who was not a Christian from, their, from his son's Sunday school class, and they went out fishing. And they're fishing, and a storm started to come up, and the waters got tossed a little bit, and... One of the boys, or, or, I'm sorry, both the boys got thrown overboard. Suddenly they're in the water and he's still in the boat and he had to save one of them. And he had time to snatch up one of them and maybe enough time to snatch up the other one, but he knew he could get one for sure. And he had to make a choice. Did he save his boy or did he save the other boy? And he, in that moment, with great presence of mind, wisdom to the Lord, chose to save the other boy. And his son died. And so that's crazy. I'm not sacrificing my son for somebody else. Not some kid that doesn't even know, doesn't even believe in Jesus. But when his son died, he went straight to heaven. If that other boy had died, he'd have gone straight to hell. 
Now, because of that, that boy got saved after that because of the sacrifice that was made, and that boy went on to serve the Lord and became kind of an evangelist and a pastor and would tell that story the world over about how the pastor had chosen him over his own son. But that's not about that pastor. That's the sacrifice that Jesus made. When Abraham goes up on the mountain and he's going to make a sacrifice, and the only sacrifice he's taken with him is his son. And his son says to him, where's the sacrifice, Dad? And he says, God will provide it. Because God had told him to sacrifice his own son. And then because he was willing to sacrifice his own son, not that you ever should do that, but because he was willing to do that, God saw his faith and counted it to him for righteousness. That's how much God loves you. It cannot be overstated. And yet he has chosen you to hear this message from his word. He's chosen you to hear the gospel. And I submit to you, chosen you to represent him on the face of the earth. That's how much God loves you. Verse 16 says this. Then, or in this translation, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. We'll come back and break those terms down and the points in a moment. But the bottom line is this is a two-point summary, essentially, of what to do in following Christ. Verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. In the Lord's Supper and in a model of prayer that I believe in, the very first thing we do is express adoration toward God. We adore God. We love God. We show. We talk about how awesome He is. Can it be said any way better than this? For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love, bless you, for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So in other words, God is always at work executing justice for the orphan and the widow. I suggest we do the same, James 1.27, because God is doing that. Show his love for the alien, the person that, that isn't at home here, by giving him food and clothing. <clears throat> Widows, orphans, aliens, they are a big part of our purview. 19. So, <clears throat> show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. See, they didn't belong in Egypt, but they were stuck there, and they did not get love from the Egyptians. And ultimately, they really did not. They were in slavery. Their babies were thrown in the river. It was, it was terrible. 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Notice it, that last part, which your eyes have seen. Say, God's not asking you to respond to what God has done that you don't know anything about. That's why the lost world, people who don't know Jesus, really not much is expected of them. They can behave kind of like however they want, pretty much. I mean, they're going to hell. It's a terrible thing, but they're going to hell. But because of their end destination, because of their relationship with God, you don't really expect a lot more. But if you're a follower of Lord Jesus Christ, a higher expectation is there because you have seen. Once the Holy Spirit is in you, once you've been saved, once God has spoken to you a couple times, once you've read his word and it's meaningful, once you've heard a sermon that really touched your heart. Verse 21 says, he is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. That phrase there, he is your praise is very meaningful. God has done, bless you, these great and awesome things for which 
your eyes have seen. And the last verse for the day out of Deuteronomy, it says, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. God expands people. That's what he does. All right, here we go. So the first thing is, in this text, notice that there is a simple answer to the question, what does the Lord God ask of you? That's awesome. Because like, in every religion across the world, they have checklists. If you follow these steps, you'll be considered religious. You'll be saved, or you'll be free, or you'll be, you'll ascend into the next plane, or you'll regenerate as a better animal, or, you know, whatever they foolishly believe that, that it is, they have lists. Tens, or forties, or whatever. If you just do these things, that will achieve you the results of our religion. So now we get a list, praise God, that will achieve for us a proper relationship, thank you so much, proper relationship with God as we go forward. Okay? And there's more to it than that, but I just want to share the list for you at first, and then I'll come back with some of the results. All right? So the first thing is it says fear the Lord. Now let's be realistic. Let's say you had a brother. Okay? We'll name him Joe, because there's no Joes in the room at the moment. Let's say you had a brother named Joe. Joe came out a pretty ordinary brother, but then by the time Joe was 20, every time he snapped his fingers, he could make the matter of stars clouds, rain, lightning, or fire appear at will. He said, boom, fire, boom, lightning, a star, there it is, shining in the sky from then on, right? Suddenly you begin to realize Joe is not ordinary. People are not supposed to be able to do that. I've never known anybody that could go like that. There it was. So they take Joe to a laboratory. They try to dissect him, but they can't because every time Joe goes like that, anybody that's trying to hurt him in any way, shape, or form is evaporated. Turned to dust. Pile on the floor. A couple of nice ones. He made, made them into stars or he sent them off to somewhere far away instead of killing them instantly. He's got that kind of power. Then Joe comes home one day and you're in the refrigerator and you're going to get a piece of chocolate cream pie. It's the last one. You pull the chocolate cream pie out of the refrigerator. You go to walk to the table. You grab a fork out of the holder. Pull the lid off, and you sit down and eat the chocolate cream pie. And Joe walks in the room and says, Hey, that's my chocolate cream pie. What just happened to your heart rate? It went through the roof. You're like, oh, wait a minute. I already know that Joe can evaporate people. Joe can make people into things. Joe can send people far away, whatever. And I just took a bite of Joe's chocolate cream pie. Even though Joe's my brother, even though I have a close relationship with Joe, and probably you ought not to go evaporating or transforming your family members, that's really kind of bad etiquette, but even so, I just took a bite of the chocolate cream pie that belongs to my brother who has stellar power. Your heart rate goes through the roof. Maybe your heart's in your throat. Your hands start to sweat. Your mouth goes, and you're like, and you can't get that chocolate cream pie out of your mouth fast enough, and you wish with all your might you could put it back and it would never be tasted, never be touched, never be, no abuse meant. And then Joe says, it's okay. I'll just make another one. And you're like, oh, wait. <laughs> Woo! You scared the crap out of me. You walked in there like that. Fear the Lord. Trust me. He has that kind of power. Fear him. Not because he's going to destroy you. He loves you. 
He's not going to send you into hell for an eternity if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Ultimately, he is pitting all of that power into making your eternity a living bliss for ongoing until there are no more calendars. However, he is still the Lord. He is still God who spoke everything from nothing into creation. He is still God who wiped out the earth with a flood because there were no righteous people. And he is still God who blew Sodom and Gomorrah off the map because they were getting into debauchery, sin, sex, various other uh, illegitimate ways of living. And he blew them off the map with a column of fire and salt from heaven. Maybe it sits under the lowest point of the earth now, which is the Dead Sea, but somewhere over there, there used to be two huge cities that still, if they lived now, they would be the most ancient and powerful cities probably on the earth. But they're gone. And their people are gone. And if it's under the Dead Sea, it's a Dead Sea. They call it that because literally no life can live there. If you leave something sitting in it for very long, the salt will collect to it so bad, you won't even be able to recognize what it is anymore. This is the God we're talking about. Fear Him. And that fear provides a healthy sustenance. We talked about how small children, you spank them when they're little. Then as they grow up, you threaten to spank them. And then as they get a little bit older still, you never have to threaten to spank them. Or even raise your voice. But we're living in a world where nobody cares enough to put the fear of their parents in the children or the world is teaching that you can't do that anymore. And so now we have children who don't fear their parents and they're going to do whatever they're going to do regardless of what their parents want. And we have some really bad parents who aren't teaching their children what to do in the first place. But God is not like that. God is a strong and mighty God who can create from nothing and destroy at will. He can separate a person from Goodness for an eternity if he chooses to. Fear the Lord. Walk in all his ways. I love this. I was at the uh, um, football game on Friday night. We get to go to the Northwood football games when they have Hogan games uh, during football season. and uh, There aren't too many left, but if somebody wants to go to one, there's one coming up. And Arden's in the marching band. He's a drum major. And it's been really cool. And uh, So Arden, on Friday morning was supposed to get up and go to school, but he slept through his alarm, so he got to school a little bit late, so he missed part of band. Well, when you miss part of band, if you miss half your school day, you're not allowed to march. Well, he's supposed to play a solo, march, he's a drum major, direct the band some, that kind of thing. And he stayed for lunch, so technically he was there for over half the day, but he came home and he's like, I don't know for sure if I'm going to be allowed to march tonight or not. He said, I think I am. He said, I think I convinced him I was there for enough time to march, whatever. So we get out there to march and band. Sure enough, they let him march. And then uh, he directs the marching band like a drum major does. I, I don't have the rhythm to do that, but he does that. And he uh, played the trumpet, played a solo, did an awesome job. I was really blessed. And as he was walking down on the field, it struck me that he could, not, he could have been not allowed to do any of what he was about to do. Then the seventh graders were out there with the marching band. So once a year, they have the seventh graders come out for their first taste of what it's like to be a marching band, and they come out there. And so with all those seventh graders there, there were 95 band members. There have never been 95. That is roughly one quarter of the entire high school, just in the marching band, okay? And there were 95 band members, but some of them were in seventh grade, so technically they're not in high school. So even if you add the seventh grade, it's almost a quarter of the seventh through twelfth grade, Right? And so he goes up, and who's going to direct them? The one song that they all do together, who's going to direct them? Arden. 
Arden gets up there, stands up on the ladder, and he directs them to the one song. He did a good job. I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, you know me. I can't tell when music is screwed up and when it's not, but it seemed like it was awesome. And as he was standing up there, this is what the Lord said to me. He said, see, I've given you a walk to walk, and you can walk it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I get it. See, Arden could have got out of bed, could have not missed his alarm, could have made it to band on time, but he made a mistake. He, he slept through his alarm. He's been having some trouble with his allergies or whatever it is, keeping him up in the middle of the night, waking him up somewhere, and so he overslept. He slept through his alarm. And then he could have been not allowed to lead the band at all, but he was allowed to lead the band by fortuitous turn of events and then became the very first person in Northwood band history to ever lead a band of 95 people. Not a teacher or a principal, but Arda. That's awesome. This is what happens. When you walk in the ways that God has laid out for you, things work the way God wants them to work. Does that mean you might avoid martyrdom? No, God may have it in a plan for you to someday die for your faith. Of course, there's great blessings for that, and you'd be first to enter in the kingdom of God according to what the word says and so on, but hopefully that doesn't happen to any one of us. But the bottom line is, if you walk in the ways that God has laid out for you, then God will do what God intends to do for you. Ultimately, the way is Jesus Christ. And so you must first trust in the Lord. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the bottom line is you walk in the way that God has laid out for you. If you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, you've got two of your bases on the ground. You're becoming firm, but you're still kind of teetery. Number three, then, is to love him. We must love God. And we're like, well, why would I not love God? I mean, he's a creator God. He gave me life. He lets me do things, he lets me eat, he lets me pray, he lets me uh, sing, he lets me walk, talk, he could evaporate me and he chooses not to, all that kind of thing. I mean, there's lots of positives about God, but the truth is there are a lot of people that don't love God, rather they hate him because they want to live a lifestyle that God says you cannot live, or they want to do a thing, they want to lie to somebody, or they want to steal from somebody, and God says you cannot do that, and they know God says that, and so they begin to hate the one who tells them that they cannot do what it is that they want to do. I'm going to be completely transparent with you for a moment, if I may. There are things that I want to do that God tells me I cannot. I'm like, what? How can that be? Well, because I'm not perfected yet. I am a normal person like anybody else. And yeah, I've come out of things that I used to do that I knew God didn't want me to do. I've stopped doing. But there are still things that are in me that I want to do. But God tells me I can't. And so I have to restrain myself. And so when I restrain myself not to do what I, what I want to do that God tells me I cannot do, there is a moment of friction there. I'm like, well, I could be mad at God. I could be frustrated with God. I could rebel or I could sneak and try to go around God as if that were a thing, right? Love God. Love him. He has given you everything. And we already heard walk in his ways. If you, at that moment in time when you choose to do what it is that God wants you to do rather than the thing that you want to do, that's walking in his ways. And then you're showing your love toward him when you don't respond mentally, emotionally, psychologically in rebellion against him. And be aware rebellion, on a side note, is extremely addictive. So fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and love him. And then maybe uh, best of all, because it seems to have worked really well when I've tried it, serve him. Find ways to do what it is that God wants done. Now, can God do it himself? Yes. Are you going to replace God 
No, never. But God, through his great grace and mercy, allows us to do what he could easily otherwise do. I, uh, I'm not going to give too much specifics here because I didn't ask this person permission, but I came in to the house and I, and I had a long list of things that needed to be done. And I looked at one of my children and I said, uh, do you have some time to take care of a couple of things? And the response was, well, if it's only a few minutes because I have to do this, this was what I had planned to do today. So then I went on and I did all of those things myself. And the truth was, because I did all of those things myself, I didn't get done everything that I wanted to get done. My child missed out on a blessing because I gave them an opportunity to serve me. The truth is, I took that blessing away when I did it myself. God is an ultimate servant. Who came to serve? Jesus. Who serves the most? Who is the leader servant of all? God. God is. Because he he made all of this for us and walks with us, protects us, provides for us, etc., 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 every day, all day. God is a servant. If you want to be made over to the image of Jesus, fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him, and serve him. And maybe you didn't serve him at first, but you started serving later, and you will be determined to be the one who actually serves the Lord if you will decide to serve him now. You say, well, I haven't been doing it. Stop not doing it and start doing it. It's simple. Decide what it is that God wants you to do and do that. And then the last on this list, for this passage anyway, of the question, what does the Lord God ask from you, is to observe his commands and his decrees and then fix them in your hearts or minds. And then that's a little bit more tricky or challenging, right? So to observe here can easily be translated as to keep or to obey or and to teach them, right? They are the requisite things of the kingdom. This is what God wants from us. Our job is to look to them. Okay, what, what do you want, God? Okay, I see that, right? And then our job is to do that the best we know how, and at the same time, absorb it, right? I now know the recipe, like the back of my hand, for homemade waffles. It's very easy. I don't make them from scratch. I make them from a mix. I add a little bit of canola oil, vanilla, cinnamon, and enough water to make it thin to pour, and then... I let it sit for one minute and I pour it on the waffles, on, on the waffle iron. And then I flip the waffle iron. I wait until I don't see any more steam coming out. I flip it over, check it. It's golden brown. Boom. I ate it. It takes me eight minutes, roughly, to make a, a waffle. I'm talking about a waffle, right? And about less than a dollar's worth of mix and canola oil, vanilla, and cinnamon. And that's my choice. You don't have to put cinnamon or vanilla in it. You can just make it without it, right? If I cut out certain steps... For example, if I decide to eat that waffle mix in that bowl with a spoon instead of putting it in the waffle iron, it's going to be pretty gross. And that's the way it is with the Lord. So the first time I went to make those waffles like that, I looked at the box and I said, okay, I'm going to make it like this. Then the second time, I looked at the box and I said, okay, I'm going to make it like this. By the third time, I started making it and I thought, now what was that again about the... And I looked at the box one more time. And from that point on, I had hidden the instructions in my mind, in my heart, whatever inside me somewhere, and I've never had to look again. That's the way it is with God. He doesn't just want you to walk in his ways or serve him or even fear him or love him. He wants you to look at what he has told you to do. Like I was talking about during the the inspirational moment. If you're praying to the Lord, asking God, God, should I tell him about Jesus? Should I tell him about Jesus? God may never answer that prayer because God has already told you and you should already have that in you to know the answer to that question. 
Just go home and ask your parents. If you've got a bedtime, ask them, should I go to bed on time? And see what the response is. Probably it's like, well, yeah, meaning, duh, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Or maybe they'll say, no, don't worry about it, because they're human. But God is not like that. When God tells you to do something, you're supposed to do what he says. And you take that command into you, and you observe it, understand it, and bury it at a place where it's not going to go away. Notice that all of this is actually for their own good. All the commands. God said to me, I have given you a path to walk and you can walk it. As hard as it may look, as impossible as it may seem, at times you may have to let go of some things that you think are good to do the great, whatever. But I have given you a path to walk and you can walk it. What does the Lord God want from you? Number one, he wants you to fear the Lord. He wants you to walk in his ways, love him, serve him, and observe and absorb, if you will, might be a good modern word for that, the teachings of the Lord and do what it is that you learn and teach those same things to others. It's called being a disciple. The second thing that's in this text then, the first one was, what does God ask for you? And I now told you, so I hope you got it. The second one was, how great is it that God chose us for this? Instead of getting out of bed and going, well, God wants me to do this and going, oh man, I got to do what God wants me to do today. Or Oh man, I can't steal that because God says not supposed to do that. Or I can't behave that way. I can't have this lifestyle because God says no. Instead of doing that, we should realize how great is it that he chose us. The caliber of God, the great and mighty awesome God who created all things versus the caliber of us. We are like a, a speck of dust on the bottom of a shoe. We are nothing compared to the God of the universe, and yet God makes us into literally everything. He has elevated us to a position to be heirs and joint heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. He's taken you from nowhere and put you somewhere to take you to there. God has done that. How great is it that he chose us? Instead of going, oh, I don't know if I'm that afraid of God. When you think about doing something you shouldn't do, you'd be like, terrified. Instead of, I'm going to walk in his ways, but at times when it's inconvenient, I sort of do something different. No, I'm going to be determined to pit all of my strength to walk in his ways. Do I love him? Yeah, I love God. Sure I do. But not when it's inconvenient or not when I'm distracted by something else or not when I'd rather stream or play, right? During those times, I'm not really worried about it. No, you love God with every waking moment, every second, every fiber of your being. Do I serve God? Sure I do. But at times I have to schedule my service because there's things I also want to do. No. You serve God 24-7 every moment that you have a choice. Do I observe His commands? Do I read my Bible, learn what it is that God wants? Do I pray and listen to Him and follow what He says? Well, if you don't, then you're not doing what God asks of you. And that might be because you've forgotten how great it is that He chose us. That he set his affections on our forefathers in the faith, those who shared Christ with us, and that he chose us above all nations. The kingdom of God will stand the test of time beyond every border, beyond every constitution. The United States of America is a young nation on world scale. Queen Elizabeth ruled England for almost half the time that America has been in existence. You follow? That's crazy. But it's real. A third, the point is, 
We are a young nation as a country. And everybody's hanging their hopes on what the United States of America is going to do and what the president is going to do. And I'm not an insurrectionist. I believe in our nation. I believe in the foundation, the way it was made, because it was written on Christian principles. The men who signed the Declaration of Independence, every single one of them was a deacon or a pastor except for one. Every single one of them. The men who put their, their jumped into their clothes and grabbed their gun and ran out, they called them Minutemen in the, in the war for the liberation of the colonies. They called them Minutemen. Those people were all Christian men who went to church 2.5 times a week. They all loved the Lord with a few exceptions, but basically all of them. So I believe in our country because of the principles it was founded on, but hear me now, if the United States of America goes away, if it dwindles and dries up, and I believe it probably will, actually I believe it will probably be elevated to be one of the horns, and then that power submitted to the Antichrist or the beast, and the world will go in a place that we don't want it to go, but the church, the kingdom of God, will remain. You won't get a vote anymore because you'll be persecuted and ruled over by an evil empire if it comes to that. But the bottom line is, how great is it that God chose us to add us to a nation that will persevere beyond all nations, that doesn't need another constitution or another set of laws or rules or rulers even, because we have the supreme ruler who is Jesus Christ who's on the throne forever. How great is it that he chose us to add us out of a great nation, yes, out of a liberal free, free nation where you get to vote and have your own opinions and think things and whatever. All of that is there so that you can choose Jesus Christ and be added to the nation that God is creating that is eternal. How great is it that he chose us, that he elected us, not that we elected him, but that he elected us into a nation that will persevere. How great is it that he chose us? What does God the Lord ask of you and how great is it he chose us? And then A logical urging then comes out of this text. Moses urges them. He says, then crucify your hearts. So I'm now going to explain in simplicity, if I can, what it means to crucify your hearts. Because if this has not been done, then either A, you're not a Christian, or B, you're barely escaping by. To crucify your hearts means to be open and responsive and obedient. So you're not distracted. You're paying attention to what God wants. And every time you figure out something new that God wants, whatever it might be, you're immediately pitting yourself to that task. To circumcise your hearts is to say, I'm not going to let anything that this world has to offer, and believe me, there's a lot. Okay? There's a lot. It can be sex. It can be political thinking. It can be video games or football, family outings. It can be children. Children draw people. It can be finances, jobs, promotions, the world has a lot to offer. And basically you're saying, no, I am going to remain open, responsive, and obedient to the Lord. So when it comes in, it starts to take up residence, I'm going to go, wait a minute, that's not responsive and obedient to Jesus. Therefore, it is at best a tool that I can use to be responsive and obedient to Jesus. And if I cannot use it, then it has no place in my life. Understand? So you get a new car. Someone comes and gives you a new car. And you're like, man, I got a new car. Yay for me. Yeah. And then you go to get the new car. And the person says, there's just one thing you got to do for me. So I need you to work every Sunday morning from 8 a.m. to 11. Just three hours a week for the next three years. Um, and 
It's yours for free. Three hours a week for the next three years. It's 150, it's 450 hours. You won't have to pay me a cent, but just do some base, you know, work in my yard for three hours a week every Sunday. I know it means you won't be able to get to church. You won't be able to worship God like you've been doing. But after three years are up, you've got it. And here's this $20,000 car. It's yours. You say no. Because I am open and responsive and obedient to the Lord. I don't have time. People go, well, I'll take you to Cedar Point. My treat. Tickets, get in for free. All the food's free. All the drinks you want. Ride all the rides. We'll go to the water park and Cedar Point, And you can spend the night. And we'll stay the next day too. And we'll be there all weekend for free on my dime. I'll take care of it. And you say, no, I'm open and responsive and obedient to the Lord. You say, but how does missing church on a Sunday mean I'm not open and responsive and obedient? What are we doing right now? We're looking to God's word for his direction. How can you be open and responsive and obedient to the Lord if you miss an opportunity to look that's been given to you? Okay. If you don't believe this is an opportunity for you, then what are you doing sitting in this room? This is an opportunity for you to hear from God, not from me. These are not my opinions. This is what the word says. He said, Moses said to them then, because this is true, because it's amazing that God chose you, because God chose you to do what? To fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, to observe and absorb his commands. Because God chose you to do that, because that amazing relationship exists. Circumcise your hearts. Become open and responsive and obedient to the Lord, whenever you know what it is that God wants from you, do that. But he didn't just say, circumcise your hearts. That's enough. It probably would be enough to run your life. If your heart was truly circumcised, then every time you started to do something God didn't want you to do, you'd notice it. Your heart would be like, ick. Right? There's certain foods I don't like. If you bring me a birthday cake frosted with mayonnaise, I'm not going to eat it. Because that's disgusting. You're like, well, I'm not going to eat it either. That's disgusting, right? But that's exactly the notion, the feeling that you should have at the moment in which you become non-responsive to God. You should have this moment. You go, like, I get that. That's available to me. Yeah, that's cool. I can have that. But no matter what it's worth to me, it's not worth not being obedient, open, and responsive to the Lord Jesus Christ. But above and beyond that, he adds this. He says, Stop being stiff-necked. And I really had to break that down. You know, you know, your translation might even stay stubborn and rebellious. But here's the reality. Even with a circumcised heart, certain actions are physically addictive. Are you, are you familiar with the term muscle memory? So just recently, a story from Arden's life he's working on. So Arden's been playing the trumpet for eight years. And he found out just recently that there, there's a problem with his embouchure. You may or may not be familiar with that term. It's the way his lips touch the trumpet. Okay? And he discovered the problem all on his own. Nobody taught him, whatever. He's like, I have this problem. And he came to me and he's like, now I really have a problem because my muscles in my face are literally trained to play the trumpet a certain way. And I realized that my range into these really, really high notes that some people, great jazz players and stuff can play, is always going to be restricted if I always come to the mouth of the trumpet the way I've been, then I'm never going to get there. It's just not going to happen. But to retrain myself to do it my this the proper way is virtually impossible because my muscles will feel like they'll only move a certain way. And that's what happens. When you act a certain way, behave a certain way, and you do things a certain way, the next time you go to do them, you're going to do them again. If you wear red every single day in a few months, you're either going to, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to hate wearing red and get rid of all your red clothes, or you're going to go, well, I'm just going to wear red for the rest of my life. And that's not even muscle memory. That's just habit. 
Right? So habit and muscle memory and steps that we take, they are addictive. They build a path. If you stream your favorite show one time until you've watched all the episodes on a streaming service, you can guarantee that unless there's a miracle of intervention or an intentional choice on your part, you will find a new favorite show and stream that one too. You're like, oh, well, that's not a sin. I didn't say it. Did I say it was a sin? What I'm saying to you is when you do something repetitively, you get good, your body gets good at doing the same thing. Sit down for eight hours a day as a, an academic like I have to do. I can sit with the best of them. Stand up and preach and be loud for a while. I can project my voice with the best of them, right? My lungs capacity is bigger than it should be. Arden and I were joking about this because he's a trumpet player and Big lung capacity is a thing for trumpet players in any wind instrument, right? And yet, my lung capacity is quite a lot larger than his, even though I don't play the trumpet. And it's because I preach. So do it for 15 years and see what happens, or whatever it is. But it works both ways, doesn't it? If you're open and responsive and obedient to the Lord, then as you are open and responsive and obedient in certain things, you'll get good at those things. You'll get good at getting up for church in the morning. You'll get good at remembering to take the right things with you. Pretty soon, you'll stop being late. You'll start being dressed. You'll start being prepared. You'll start having the things that you need. You'll start coming to worship. Wait for it, because this will step on your toes. Already prayed up and studied up in preparation for what the Lord might say. You'll be going like, I got church tomorrow. I got to get my Bible out and read it. I know we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. I know we stopped in verse 9. And I'm not going to ask you, but I'm going to bet any amount of money there ain't one person in this room that read from 10 to the end of the chapter before they got here today. Even though we all knew that we're working through the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm not saying that's a sin. I'm just saying, as you develop those muscles and develop those things, you'll be thinking along that line. So I'll tell you right now, next week, unless the Lord changes it, we're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Who might think about reading those verses before they come? Anybody. And as you study, and as you read, and as you grow, you'll get good at studying, reading, and growing. The paths that we walk, these paths, we get stuck in them. There's a winding path in the grass, and it's finally fading away from my creek to my, my garbage cans. Because there's an old groundhog, and probably three or four generations, actually, of groundhogs that would wander from the creek up to my garbage can to eat my garbage. And they wore a path. Why did they wear a path? Because they went the same way every day. That's what we're doing. We're going the same way. You think, well, no, I, I do different things all the time. I'm constantly doing different things. But I bet you could categorize those different things and they'd be basically the same things. And the way you do them are basically the same. We're creatures of habit. We're stiff-necked. And God says no more. God says stop being stiff-necked. Be open and responsive and obedient, not stubborn and rebellious. That's what we need to be. And that brings us to our conclusion. I'll repeat one more time the points for those who are trying to bring them home or maybe write them down or whatever. What does the Lord God ask of you? He asks you to fear Him, walk in His ways, love Him, serve Him, and observe His commands. How great is He that chose us? When we recognize how great that is that He chose us, it only makes logical sense for us to circumcise our hearts, become open and responsive and obedient to the Lord, in contrast with being stiff-necked or stubborn and walking the path that we've always walked. But the sermon title is God's Surprising Effort. And I'm, I'm guessing, if you're in this room, you've been a Christian for a while, that, that none of that comes as very much of a surprise to you. It didn't to me. As I read the text, I'm like, well, that's a five-point sermon that, you know, I probably preached five different sermons or maybe 40 different sermons. I, I probably preached 
fear the Lord as a sermon. And I probably preach walk in his ways as a sermon and love him and serve him and each one of those things. So this could be a five-point sermon series. I could do a sermon on each one. And then I could add in there a sermon on circumcising your hearts and a sermon on how great it is that he's chosen. You think I've preached those things before? They, don't, they all seem pretty not new, don't they? I mean, in some way or another, they might be, the application might be stronger today or the Lord might be saying, you know, I see you're not doing that. I'm calling you to it. And you might be convicted in your spirit that you need to change things. But the truth is, they're really not all that different. But here's what's a little different. The surprising effort of the Lord is not about making a way that you can walk. The, the surprising effort of the Lord is not about making a people that fear the Lord or a people that walk in his ways or a people that love him or a people that serve him or a people that observe his commands. The surprising effort of the Lord is not about any of those things. But there's something about circumcising our hearts that's in the surprising effort of the Lord. We look with me at Jeremiah chapter 4, if you're following along in your Bibles. We are in the conclusion. Jeremiah chapter 4. In Jeremiah chapter 4, and the prophet Jeremiah had quite a life. He's called the weeping prophet because he really suffered for the Lord. I'll go back to verse 3. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 and 4 to you. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Now that would be like kind of like the head of the nation of the Israelites, the people that were called, people had God's commands. They were supposed to be fearing the Lord, walking in his ways, loving him, serving him, and observing his commands, but they weren't. They're supposed to be recognizing how, awesome, recognizing how awesome it was that God had chosen them, but they weren't. They should have crucified their hearts, but they didn't. They should have not been stiff-necked anymore, but they were. Okay, And then Jeremiah says, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Here it is. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Now, real quick, you, you do know what circumcision is, right? It's when they take the foreskin of the penis of a man and they slice it so that the hood can slide down and sit where it sits and we're familiar with Okay, for those of you who have never seen a penis or never been trained on that, I apologize if I'm breaking you in on that, but it's okay, don't worry about it, this is not sexual, nothing like that, this is a physical surgery is performed in almost every child, on almost every child in America now, but not everybody, there are some, parents choose not to do it. It's a health thing, it has health benefits, but for them it was a mark of to whom they belong. Why did they circumcise the penis among the Israelites? Well, they did it to remind them that as God's people, they should have had a circumcised heart. But they didn't do that. As long as they were circumcised physically, they didn't have to have a circumcised heart. At least that's the way they lived, right? Circumcise yourself to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. The part of your heart that is calloused, the part of your heart that causes infection, the part of your heart that covers over and makes you unresponsive, right? He says, circumcise the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let my wrath go forth like fire and burn and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Let me read it again because I messed up one word. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench because of the evil of your deeds. Let's read the whole thing again because it's complicated English. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. I think we understand that part. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest... My wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So what is he telling them? He says, circumcise your hearts. Or otherwise, in other words, circumcise your hearts so that it won't be this way. That's what lest means. 
right? So that it won't be this way, so that my wrath will not go forward and destroy everybody because of their evil deeds. You follow? They were to circumcise their hearts, and we are to circumcise our hearts and no longer be a stiff-necked people. We're to fear the Lord, walk in all his ways, love him, serve him, observe his commands. How great is it that he chose us, and therefore circumcise our hearts and not be stiff-necked, so that God's wrath will not pour out and destroy all people who are wicked and evil in their ways, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now read Hosea 10.12. is our next to the last passage of the day. Hosea is one of the little books. I didn't mark it either. It's one of the little books back after Daniel, I believe, right? Daniel. Yep, there he is. Hosea chapter 10. Verse 12, chapter 10, verse 12, says this. Sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. See, this is the, the direction of the kingdom of God. This is what we do. Stand up in righteousness, be strong and do what is right, but understand that God has prepared us to quench the fire of His wrath. Our job as Christians is not to have a better path to walk. Our job as Christians is not to be responsive and serve and do all those things. That's how we do our job. But the bottom line is we have become a barrier between God's wrath and the world. I want you to think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You may recall. God went to Abraham in advance and he said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said, but my nephew Lot lives there. That's what he said in his head. So he said to God, would, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if 50 righteous men lived there? And God said, uh, no, if 50 righteous men were found there, I would not destroy the city. If 50 righteous men there were found there, I would not destroy the city. You hear it? If 50 righteous men were found in the cities of Lot, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, I would not destroy them for sake of those 50 righteous men. Abraham said, well, what if there were only 10? If there were 10 righteous men found there, would you not destroy the city? God said, if there were 10 righteous men found there, I would not destroy the city. Abraham says, if I may dare to ask you just one more time, what if there were only one righteous man found there? Would you destroy the city? And we know the answer. He would not. What he did was he called Lot out. Being the only righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah, he called him out and he said, and don't look back. You don't need anything to do with that. Do not look back at where you come from. Tell him and his family, do not look back as the angels were leading them out. His wife looked back and she was instantly turned into a pillar of salt because she longed for that light that was in Sodom and Gomorrah in some way enough to look back and see. Or she distrusted what God was going to do or whatever was in her heart at that mind, but her heart was not circumcised unto the Lord. And she looked back and she was immediately turned into a pillar of salt. Now Lot, terrified, takes his family into the mountains instead of going where he was allowed to flee to, and, and that creates all kinds of problems down the road. But the bottom line is, God would not have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah if there had been but one righteous man there. The surprising effort of the Lord is not that he has given you a way to walk. It is not that he has given you a clear set of commands and made us able to follow those commands, or that he has called us to circumcise our hearts, or that he has called us to be obedient and listen and follow his teaching. None of that comes as a great surprise. But what the great surprise is, is that he did all of that to protect everyone else from his wrath. We live today 
If you are in the kingdom of God as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that you are on the earth, that's why all of the teachings of the world that are going on and people are getting involved in all the sexual things, all the abortion and the violence and the murder and the stealing and the graft that might be existing in government, the, the, the slander that's happening on social media, the gossip that's going around, all of that stuff, people are not instantly being destroyed by God's wrath because we're still here. That's the surprising effort of God. God was giving himself and the people who do not know him time that the gospel might save all that will come to him. What did Peter say? He said, God is not slow as some men count slowness, but rather he is patient with us that all men might come to repentance. The surprising effort of God is that he was putting a force field up for the world and the world's teachings and let's just say it plainly, the crap that people are doing the men and women and children who do not know better, or maybe they do. And that force field is us. He's given you a way that you can walk. He's called you into a kingdom that will persist. And I submit to you that means, wait for it, that there will come a moment in time at which the, te the teachings of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of God, itself of the church will be obsolete. We will be obsolete when, as the book of Revelation says, the seals are open and the wrath of God is poured out upon the face of the earth. And the force field that is us, that's in place, that we might share the gospel for this period of time as we are open and responsive to Him and as we fear Him and love Him and walk in His ways, do what Jesus told us to do, basically. Sharing the gospel, loving others, bringing people to Christ. As all of that is no longer called for because God said he was done. Oh, and by the way, who is it who is worthy to open the seal and release the wrath of God upon the earth? None but the Lamb. None but our King. None but our King Jesus who is holy and righteous unto his own death for us. Some people believe that the church will still be on the earth during the tribulation. I believe that we will not be because there will no longer be a reason for us to protect the disobedient from God's wrath. Go ye therefore and tell everyone who will listen the truth about Jesus because that's what he commands us to do. Love and serve and be kind. Deliver the gospel to a lost and dying world that's going to hell. Because if they die not knowing Jesus, that's where they're going. And if they live when Jesus comes again and pulls us out of the equation, withdraws the force field, if you will, opens the seal and exposes God's wrath to the disobedient, then that's where they're going. Away from God forever. I ask you today, the God who was that amazing and chose you? Will you respond to him? Will you say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. The rest of my days are yours. And even though there are things that I might want to do, I know you know for me what is best. And I will circumcise my heart and I will not be stiff-necked. And when I develop bad habits or get into rebellion, I will repent of them and turn back to you again. 
I will follow you. You will be my Lord. I'll be your people. I'll be part of the nation that you've called me to, which will last until Jesus comes again. I'll be part of the force field. I'll be part of the righteous. I'll be part of the faithful. And then when Jesus comes again, I'll be ready. We make that decision today. That is a decision to be saved. It is a decision to be owned. It is a decision to be a child of God. If you could elect yourself into someone's will to receive a billion dollars, wouldn't you do it? Especially if there were no other requirements, if it was already paid for. Nothing less than that is being asked of you. Become an heir with Jesus today. Turn away from your own ideas of the way things work and turn to His. They will persist. They will last. And this pathway is walkable until Jesus comes again. And He may in our lifetime. And if He doesn't, then we will die for Him and go directly into His presence. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Do you want to be absent from the body and wondering? Do you want to be absent from the body and sure? Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. That means He tells you what to do and you do it. As your Savior, that means He paid the price for your sins. Trust in Him alone and He'll bring you through. I'll pray for us briefly and we'll have the praise team come up and lead us. And this is our opportunity to make a decision of whatever the Lord may be putting on our hearts. And it's our opportunity to commit ourselves to Him and to follow His ways. Father in heaven, you're an awesome God, an amazing and powerful God, a creator God, and when necessary, a destroyer God. You're a provider God, a protector God, a healer God. You alone are God. We see what you've done. Maybe one of the most known and proven facts in history is Jesus Christ dying on the cross and being resurrected three days later. Some people say that only events in recent history that happen while people are still alive are more proven and more known. Though I didn't stand at the cross then, though I didn't follow them as they were crucifying Jesus, though I wasn't present at the purifying of the unclean or the healing of the blind or the healing of the paralytic or, or when Jesus brought Lazarus back to life or when he walked on water. Some days... I feel as if I can feel the sensations of what it must have been like. And I wonder if those sensations are not wrapped up in the very salvation that you've put in me. And I know in my heart of hearts that I've been saved. And I commit myself to circumcise my heart, to give up my stiff-necked way of doing things, and to become responsive and obedient to you, to walk in the way that you prepared for me, It's a way I can walk. No one said it was easy. Many have said it was hard, but I wonder if they... Maybe they forgot just how awesome it is that you chose us to walk it. Maybe I've forgotten at times. I ask you, Lord, to move in the hearts of this people. Let us unanimously decide, one and all decide, to follow you through your Son, Jesus Christ. To be forgiven to be healed, to be reborn, to be sealed up for that day, and to be at work as the shield for other human beings 
to protect them from your wrath until such day as Jesus comes again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask the praise team to come forward and lead us in this final song. And then as we sing, if the Lord has laid on your